This morning we're in Philippians uh, chapter 4, looking at verses 4 through 9. It's on page 1166 in the church Bible. Um, It's helpful as we read to keep the larger context of this passage in mind. Uh, In 320, Paul has told the Philippians to remember, uh, there's some who set their minds on earthly things, but Christians are citizens of heaven, and they wait from heaven for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So that's the larger context, is this contrast between those who set their minds on earthly things and those who know themselves to be citizens of heaven. And citizens of heaven are living, waiting for a Savior to appear. Well, as Tom Petty sings, the waiting is the hardest part. What do you do in the meantime? What does life look like in the here and now? Well, that's what Paul's talking about at the beginning of chapter 4 here. He says, stand firm. You live in the midst of a culture that sets their minds on earthly things. You're to set your mind on heavenly things. You're not to pull out of the culture, but like a rock, a big boulder in the middle of the river, you're to stand firm as sort of the waters of culture surround you. Stand firm. Agree in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Well, we looked at those instructions two weeks ago, uh, the first part, and now we're going to pick up at verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4, which functions as a kind of hymn, uh, not hymn, hinge, linking 1 through 3 and then the rest. So uh, verse 1, verse 2, verse 4, they all have commands that are in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. But then from verse 4, moving forward, Paul tells us about some concrete practices that help us to rejoice in the Lord. Okay, I hope that sets it up in a way uh, that we keep in mind the larger context as I read Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word. Well, I have to confess, I'm a little bit uh, uh, trepidatious about preaching this passage because I'm so excited about it, and I just feel like I didn't get everything in that I wanted to, and so if I start rambling, um, someone might have to throw something at me at one point. Uh, and, I, and then extra pressure because Ruth told me that this was the sermon at her and Albert's wedding, and so I feel like there's a high bar to uh, live up to here, so I'm, I have had extra pressure uh, on that. What I think Paul is talking about, though, in these verses is a picture of Christian presence in the world. Or we could say, what does it look like as Christians to engage our culture. As I've reminded us, Christians are like citizens of another land, citizens of heaven. Their loyalty is to the king of heaven. 
And so Paul says at the opening, uh, verses 4 and 5, they are to be marked by rejoicing, or we are to be marked by rejoicing and reasonableness. The basic instruction that stands at the head of this whole passage is rejoice in the Lord always. Paul repeats it to underline, drive home the point. He says, again I will say, rejoice. He doesn't just say be merry, be jolly, be jovial, but rejoice in the Lord. Take joy in the Lord. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis comments, if you want to get warm, you have to stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you have to get in the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They're not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. True joy, true peace, true life, true power, is, it, it, it bubbles up from God's own self. And so it's not that God can just send it off somewhere that he's not, but rather as we come close to God, we share in his joy and his peace. So rejoicing in the Lord means getting close to God. Our relationship to the Lord is central to true joy. So we sing in the Christmas carol, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. The joy is because the Lord is near. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. So rejoicing in the Lord is about living in God's presence. We have joy as we see God working in the world and in our lives. And so we rejoice in worship as we gather together as God's people and sing his praises. And we rejoice as we get close to God. Joy is what happens when we see the unfolding of God's work of salvation in the world, even in the midst of suffering and opposition. So if you think back over the letter, Paul rejoices that the Philippians are growing in their faith. He rejoices that the gospel is being preached even while he's in prison. He rejoices in the Lord. He's seeing God's plan unfold in the world, and so he has joy despite his external circumstances. Well, these verses then lay out a few ways to get close to God so that we can rejoice in the Lord. We can see God's work in our lives and in our world. So the first big idea I want us to catch here from verses 6 and 7 is go after God with our prayer. Go after God with our prayer. If you look at verses 5 and 6, there's an interesting repetition. Paul uses the same verb uh, in both verse 5 and verse 6. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. Let your request be made known to God. This repetition links together these two instructions that at first glance seem rather disconnected. We're called to publicly disclose our character as reasonable, gentle, gracious, forbearing, and to privately disclose our needs to God in prayer. Now, Paul's not shifting gears here from how we relate to our culture uh, and our world to private spiritual practices. Think as you read through the book of Acts, the different stories uh, of the apostles and other early missionaries, one of the things that stands out is their poise and their demeanor. Wherever they're at, whoever they're with, they're composed, even graceful, in the way they speak. 
in the way they present the gospel, even when they're imprisoned or addressing angry mobs. And that's really just a reflection of Christ's own character, isn't it? Think of Christ's poise. Whether he's at dinner with tax collectors and prostitutes, or he's arguing with religious leaders, or he's traveling the highways and byways with outcasts, he seems composed. He seems to know what to say, what's appropriate in that situation. Even when he clears out the temple and drives everybody out, uh, people aren't standing back saying, oh boy, that's embarrassing. He lost his temper in public, and now everybody's seen it. What it says is the religious leaders are upset, but the crowds actually gather around him and listen to him teach. So even when he loses his anger, people are like, well, yeah, that's the right response to this situation, and we want to draw closer to him. Okay, so what's the secret then to this sort of poise and composure, sort of knowing the right thing to say and do in the midst of a world that's at times very opposed to us? Well, Paul's linking together making your reasonableness be known and making your request known to drive home this point that the Christian's public poise depends on private prayer. The Christian's public poise depends on private prayers. Our outward character, what people see in us, depends on our inner spiritual life. So reasonableness is not a matter of how we market our message as Christians. If we can just get the right words and kind of you know, have a little study group to figure out exactly how to say things. More importantly, reasonableness is about using the right words in prayer. Or I should say, directing our words to the right person in prayer. And then see, between this reference to the public in verse 5 and the private in verse 6 is this reassurance. The Lord is at hand. Paul's saying, as citizens of heaven, you're a minority in the midst of a culture that their minds are set on things of earth, they're opposed to the way you think, but don't be anxious. The Lord is just around the corner. Uh, that can be both spiritual or temporal. You know, he's going to return. The order of this world will be disrupted when he returns, but he's also near to us, close to us. Don't be anxious. Instead, in everything, pray. Prayer is the antidote to anxiety. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Uh, the Stoics, both ancient and modern, encouraged their followers also to not be anxious. But they sought to overcome anxiety through self-mastery, self-sufficiency, self-confidence. Now, Paul echoes the language of the Stoics saying, don't be anxious. But it's not about independence, self-mastery, self-control. No, it's about God-dependency, Christ-confidence, yielding control to our Lord. Prayer is the antidote for anxiety by putting everything in perspective. Prayer reorients our view towards God. As we sang in that opening song, so we should pray, open my eyes so I may see that you, my God, will walk with me. We pray that it puts our life and what's happening in it into perspective. And that's the antidote to anxiety. In prayer, we seek to know experientially what we know intellectually to be true, that the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Well, as we look at verse 6, Paul squeezes quite a lot of teaching about prayer into this verse. First, it's easiest to, easy to miss this obvious uh, point, but it's, it, we need reminded of it. 
Paul uses an imperative here. He gives us a command, an instruction. We're told, pray. Now, our, our, our natural, or maybe I should say unnatural, fallen inclination is to pray when we feel like it or when external circumstances force us to pray because we're desperate, and that's right and good. In desperation, we should turn to God in prayer. But a doctor wouldn't give us an antidote to a deadly poison with the instruction, take it if you feel like it. Uh, whenever you remember, take this pill, but don't worry about it that much, right? No, a doctor says, take this twice daily or you'll die. That's the doctor's instructions. Well, Paul is saying, if you want to have the antidote for anxiety, you need to pray. Going after God in prayer means commitment to praying consistently, persistently, whether we feel like it or not. We need tenacity and determination in prayer. And to make it abundantly clear, this means praying daily, whether you feel like it or not if we're going to go after God. Well, he tells us, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything pray. So what's an appropriate thing to pray about? Paul says anything and everything. As one, one writer puts it, if it matters to you, it matters to God. Okay, if it's occupying your thoughts, it's weighing on you, then it's something God cares about, no matter how trivial you might think it is. And then Paul tells us about our position in prayer. He calls this uh, both prayer and supplication. Prayer is this general term, and we can think of prayer as a conversation with God. Okay, he speaks to us in his word, and we speak back to him. We talk through our lives and what we're worried about and what we're concerned about with God. But supplication, it's, it's, it's an old word that we don't use as often, but a supplicant is someone who comes to a person in authority to beg for what they need. Okay, so the supplicant is the humble person coming into the king's presence, begging for what they need. And so Paul reminds us, on the one hand, we are called to friendship with God, talking with him, conversing with him. On the other hand, we need to remember our place before God, that we are humble in the presence of the God of all things. Fourth, Paul tells us to make known our requests with thanksgiving. There's balance here in prayer. It puts things in perspective. As we prayerfully consider our situation, our lives, we should contemplate all the things that we have to be grateful for. And not just contemplate it and like write it down on a piece of paper, but thank God for it. It's part of the beauty of the Christian faith is, is we all sense from time to time that you know, this is just so great, I need to thank someone for it. And so then people thank karma or the universe or something facile and meaningless. But Christians know who to thank for every good thing that comes from God. But Paul says, acknowledge your needs before God as well. We need God to work. So we make our requests known to him. We balance gratitude and request. Paul's teaching on prayer then comes with a promise. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, peace uh, is this, this, it's more than just the absence of conflict. It's wholeness in the Bible. It's uh, restored relationships. Restored relationships upward with God and outward with others. Paul says at the end of verse 7, this peace works in Christ Jesus. 
So we have peace with God. As, uh, as we're reconciled to God through the work of Christ Jesus, we have a relationship that's made whole with God. And then that peace with God should start to work outwards into our relationships with others. So we're anxious when we can't think beyond ourselves and our own means. Okay, we look at our situation, we say, this is what I can do, and it's beyond me, and we're anxious about that. But Paul says prayer orients us towards God, and we have his peace that surpasses all understanding. Maybe we don't even understand how he's going to bring good out of the situation in front of us, but we don't need to understand it all. We don't need to have it all worked out to trust in God. Prayer orients us towards God. Uh, Tim Keller in his book on prayer says, In prayer, we may see that we are more loved and cared for than we had felt, and this diminishes our fears. On the other hand, we may see that we are more foolish and self-absorbed than we thought, and prayer gets rid of our anger and self-pity. In both cases, it's orienting us beyond ourselves towards God. Paul says this peace that God gives is like a garrison that guards our hearts and minds. But he doesn't just say God sets up this peace to defend your heart and mind and now you just be passive and do whatever you want. No, he continues in verse 8 giving instructions for how we use our minds well to keep them defended. Paul's saying go after God in prayer and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds like a garrison and here's your marching orders. Or I guess a garrison doesn't march, it stays stationed around a fortress. But here's how you defend your heart and mind. And so the second big idea in our passage is go after God with our minds. Go after God with our prayers. Now go after God with our minds. So the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Therefore, this is how you should use your mind. This is what you should think about. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul lists eight characteristics here, and they overlap in a variety of ways. That's kind of the point. Paul's setting up these standards that are a bit like a sieve or a strainer, you know what you uh, dump your spaghetti pot into, that kind of thing, that the, the stuff you don't want drains through and the stuff you want to retain stays. Uh, the picture he has here is a bit as when, when we engage our world, uh, we're like miners panning for gold in a river, right? That we're shaking it out so that the, the muck that we don't want floats to the top and goes out and the gold remains. That's those, uh, you know, maybe hopefully one of those pictures of gold mining, using a strain or something. You know, that's the kind of picture Paul's giving us here, is these overlapping standards that should knock out the things that shouldn't be coming into our minds and drawing our attention to the things we should be focused on. This instruction presupposes two realities that we need to keep before our eyes. On the one hand, Paul assumes that in our world there are, in fact, True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy things to be found. Uh, our culture has things like that that we as Christians should give our attention to. And this is to be expected. After all, in Genesis 2, God creates people in his own image, and he puts them in a garden, and he gives them the job of working and gardening it. Or, or sorry, guarding it. Uh, working and guarding the garden to cultivate the potential of, 
of creation in a way that honors God and fits with his plan. And in fact, uh, the word cultivate, what we do in a garden, and the word culture come from the same Latin root. The ideas are related. And in fact, as Christians, we need to hold that together. Our original vocation is to garden. And so what we do in the natural world, how we, how we care for the natural world, that's related to the cultural products we create. Um, and, and at times, our uh, uh, secular society wants to bifurcate these things. Okay? So there's you know, what you do when you're laying irrigation pipe, and then there's what's on the magazine rack at the checkout counter at the grocery store, and that's culture you know, the celebrities, and yet what we do when we irrigate, that's not culture. But the Bible doesn't, that's not how the Bible thinks about it. It's saying everything we do as humans is culture. Uh, it's how we cultivate the world. And so we need to see all of that as fulfilling our calling in many ways. And so what we, when we look around at the world around us, in many ways people continue to make things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy, and Christians should think about such things. And yet at the same time, Paul's telling us to use the strainer to strain out what's good. And so the other presupposition is that there's a lot of things in our world that we shouldn't be thinking about. There's a lot of things we should be keeping out of our minds. There's a lot of things which are not true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, or praiseworthy. So Paul says, sift those things out. And again, that's exactly what we should expect as Christians, because humans were created in God's image, told to work and guard the garden, and yet, instead of gardening, guarding the garden, they let the serpent in, and they let the serpent lead them into rebellion against God. And so now, all that we produce in culture, even the best that we make, is still marked by our rebelliousness. And so, as Christians, we want to keep both those in mind, that we see uh, a rays of light of God's image shining through in what humans make, and yet we also see shadows and, 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 and mars on what we do. Well, Paul says, citizens of heaven are not called to withdraw from the world, but to stand firm in the midst of our culture, not to be argumentative, but reasonable, not to be anxious, but depend on God. And in the midst of that culture, or our culture, we exercise discernment, sifting the good from the bad. And let's look at these standards just briefly. Paul says, whatever is true, of course, that's rooted in God's own character. Does it align with reality as God has created it? Is it true? That cuts two ways, um, and we need to remember that. It cuts two ways. On one hand, as Augustine says, all truth is God's truth. Likewise, John Calvin says, all truth is from God, and consequently, if wicked men have said anything that is true and just, we ought not reject it, for it has come from God. If something's true, we should accept it and embrace it, regardless of where it comes from. And yet, on the other hand, saying whatever is true reminds us that we live in a culture that is increasingly dominated by falsehood. Politicians lie with impunity. Social media accounts exaggerate how exciting our lives are. Uh, at work, we misrepresent in order to sell our products. And Christians are called to be committed to what is true. And so we need to stand against a culture of falsehood. Embracing whatever is true regardless of who is speaking it. Uh, whatever is honorable, or, or the word sometimes I think NIV is noble, respectable, the idea here is, is serious-minded as opposed to being flippant or superficial. Again, there is so much in our culture that is superficial. There's so much sarcasm and mockery. Our humor tends to be acerbic and biting. And Paul's saying, screen that out. Build up. 
whatever is just. Again, Paul points us back to God's own character as revealed in Christ. Justice, righteousness. Christians are called to be committed to what's just and right, no matter how costly it may be for us personally. For Christ himself fulfilled the justice of God at the cost of his own life. Whatever is pure, uh, I think what Paul's talking about here is integrity. So we might disagree with a politician, for example, a community, uh, a county commissioner or something. We might disagree with their policies, and yet we can acknowledge that they have integrity, that they speak truthfully, that they're not trying to deceive us. And when we see that, we should praise it. Whatever is lovely. This word's not used anywhere else in the New Testament, but in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used to describe Esther's beauty. Remember, Esther wins this beauty contest over all of Persia. That's the idea here. Something that's beautiful, attractive, that's lovely. Paul reminds us that not just truth, goodness, justice, those are important, but also beauty. Whatever's commendable, if you can commend it to someone else, if it deserves praise, if it's excellent, if it's worthy of praise, think about all these things. As Christians, oftentimes uh, when we evaluate culture, when we engage culture, we're focused on avoiding bad things. And that's good. Paul says, screen out things that shouldn't be in your mind. But Paul points us beyond that, and there's a positive calling here. We're called to find what is excellent and praiseworthy and to enjoy what is beautiful. We're to be on the lookout for good things we can affirm. Well, there's another page in my sermon somewhere. This has not happened to me before. Do you want to see if it's in my bag there? Should be page five. Huh. That's interesting. Well, if not, if not, I won't worry about it. So Paul tells us uh, to look for the positive things that were uh, uh, in culture that were to affirm. I'm trying to think if I'm now I'm totally dis- discombobulated, getting thrown off. Oh, oh, here we go. Thank you so much, Eva. Uh, But that doesn't even make sense. I don't know what I did here. Oh, this is page five of last week's sermon. I see what happened. Don't worry about it all. Thank you for bearing with me. It's okay, because I remember what my third point is, so we'll be good. Okay. So Paul's telling us to seek after God, uh, draw close to God, go after God. We go after God in our prayers. We go after God in our minds, and that means, uh, I think predominantly what he's talking about here is when we're in the midst of the world, how do we sift through what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what we should give our attention to and what we should ignore. And part of the way we do that is we train our minds to be good at focusing on what it ought to be. And part of the way we do that is we, God gave us a book and he says, this is a book that's worth thinking about. Here's something to give your attention to. So as we read scripture, it shapes us and teaches us to discern. Uh, And sometimes that challenges us in a strange way. If you read through Samuel and Kings, for example, or the book of Judges that the high school students are going through, it sounds a bit more like Game of Thrones than it does like a sort of Christian romance novel. Uh, I've never read a Christian romance novel. Maybe I shouldn't be knocking stuff I don't don't read. But but I'm saying there's there's brutality, there's uh, deception, there's all kinds of things. That that's in something doesn't necessarily mean that that story is necessarily evil because Samuel Kings shows us you have an evaluative viewpoint that helps you to sort through and you're learning from that. Well, when David does these things, that's wrong. When he does these things, that's right. So we take lists of virtues like Paul gives us here, and that's sort of the starting point, the basics. 
as we read through other parts of Scripture, it's training us to discern, okay, is this character acting well or poorly here? Is this the sort of thing we should emulate or, 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 or avoid? So we fill up our minds with the good things that God has given us, his word fundamentally, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the things we sing, that again should help us and shape our appetite. And then we use that as we fill up our mind like a colander, like a, a, a sieve, to sift through what's good and bad in the world round about us. But again, I, I want to be careful here because it, this gives the impression that as Christians, when we engage culture, it's just meant to be passive consumers. And again, that's one of the big lies of our societies. We're just entirely passive in our consumption of culture. So you just sit back and watch Netflix, and that's all there is to it. You're consuming culture. But it, as I mentioned earlier, Culture is, is, at its root, it's about cultivating the world. And so we should be active, cultivating fields, cultivating forests, uh, making art, uh, making music. That's what we do when we sing together. Uh, but even beyond that, it's not just things that the world might identify as culture, but hospitality is an important part of culture. Homemaking is fundamental to human culture. And so when we homemake, when we're in our fields, when we make music and art, we should pursue what is excellent, worthy of praise, commendable, lovely. Christians should be producing the highest, things that are the most attractive. Okay, go after God in your prayers. Go after God with your minds. Go after God with your lives. This is the final point Paul gives us in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul's saying our ultimate standard, our ultimate uh, uh, model that we follow is something we have heard, uh, or sorry, something we have learned and received. It's the gospel story. It's this basic Christian faith that we hold firm to. Paul's already reminded the Philippians in this letter what that story is, what they learned and received. That humans who were placed in the garden, Adam, told to work and to guard it. Instead, he lets the serpent in, and he follows the serpent into rebellion, and so they're exiled from the garden and away from the tree of life. And what's the good news? What did they learn and receive? That Christ Jesus, God's own son, comes into the world as the second Adam. And he is arrested in the garden. And he's taken to a cross and crucified. And yet in his obedience to God, he crushes the serpent's head. What Adam should have done in the first place. That's not all serpents, okay? We're not opposed to all snakes. But the snake that's speaking against God's word and anything that speaks against God's command, that's to be our response is to crush it. And that's what Christ does on the cross. He crushes Satan, the serpent, through his obedience to God. And by being nailed to that tree, Although humans are exiled from the tree of life, the cross becomes for us a tree of life. So whoever comes to the tree can eat its fruit and live forevermore. That's what we sang this morning. If you are in Christ, death is but the doorway to life. True life, life abundantly. That's what we have learned and received. And then Paul reminds us, it's not just that you heard it or you read it in a book, you heard, or, or, or learned it read, it, read it in a book, you, you've heard it and seen it in me. You've seen it lived out in my own transformed life. And so that's part of why it's important that we gather together as a Christian community, is to look for godly examples that we can imitate. 
We need to see what it looks like when the gospel transforms a life. It's oftentimes not flashy. It rarely winds up in the uh, tabloids at the checkout line at the grocery store. And yet, simple, humble models of faithfulness and of doing our work to the glory of God is what we need for examples in our lives. But we don't just learn it. We don't just see it. Paul says we have to practice these things. We have to live it. So we go after God with our uh, prayers, with our minds, but then with our lives. We've got to live it out. We need to see our lives transformed by God's work. And Paul ends with this promise. Not just that God will give you peace, the peace of God, but the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace himself will be with you. That's that fundamental promise of Scripture, the heart of all the covenants. I will be your God, and you will be my people. We'll be bound together. It's almost marriage language. We're going to be linked together through thick and thin, for better or worse, I'm going to stick with you. And that's the promise here. God says, go after me with your prayers, go after me with your mind, go after me with your life. It'll be costly, it'll be painful at times, and yet here is the promise. The God of peace himself will be with you. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you give us these challenges, that you tell us how to draw near to you. What I ask now, Lord, is that we would go after you with our prayers, that we would be a church that is committed with tenacity and grit to praying in season and out, through thick and thin, that we would be a church known as people who pray daily, who experience your presence daily. And as we reorient ourselves towards you in our prayers, may we experience true joy, true life-changing joy. May we be a people who go after you with our minds. Lord, we are bombarded with uh, just a constant input of information and television shows and songs and music and podcasts so much more than perhaps any point in history. And yet we trust in your word that if we commit our minds to you, we commit ourselves to you in prayer, that you will be a guard around our minds and our hearts. And that's what we ask for. Help us to use our minds in a way that glorifies you. And then, Lord, we ask that we would go after you with our lives, that as we come to Christ Jesus, the serpent crusher, that your cross would be to us a tree of life, that we might have life and life abundantly, that we might be your people, that you, the God of peace, would be with us. And as we know your presence, as we affirm your presence with our minds and we experience your presence in prayer, may we have the joy of the Lord, and may it be our strength. Amen.